Loren was on location today at the Leaf, the site of the swearing-in ceremony, big historic day in Manitoba, as Canada's first First Nations premier in a province being sworn in today with Wab Canoe. Not a good night for the Winnipeg Jets. Not only did they get pounded, but the attendance was poor, just over 11,000. And something happened before the game that got hockey analyst Leah Hextall all fired up. And we had a blast asking you about your fast food tricks. I'm Brett McGarry, alongside Greg Mackling and Loren McNabb. We are Mackling, McGarry and McNabb. And this is the Wednesday, October 18th podcast for The Start. It is Mackling, McGarry and McNabb. At least 199 people have been taken hostage by Hamas after its surprise attack on Israel, with a militant group now releasing a video appearing to show one of the hostages. Global's Jeff Semple explains what's known about Mia Shem and her family's pleas for her to be brought home safely. I didn't know she's dead or alive until yesterday. Karen Shem's 21-year-old daughter Mia was one of the thousands attending a music festival near the Gaza border when Hamas gunmen attacked. For nine days, her family feared she was dead until they saw her on TV. I started to shout. I felt on the floor and to scream. Her daughter appeared in this Hamas hostage video. In it, Mia says she's in Gaza and that her hand was injured, so she had an operation. They are taking care of me, she says. Everything is fine. I only ask that someone return me home as soon as possible. It's not known where or when the video was recorded or if the comments were made under duress. She looks very terrified. She looks like she's in a big pain. I'm begging the world to bring my baby back home. Israeli officials say Mia is one of around 200 Hamas hostages captured during its Saturday morning massacre. Their faces now plastered on this wall of the missing, just across from Israel's defense ministry in Tel Aviv. This rally started spontaneously one week ago by Avihai Brodich after his wife and three young children were kidnapped by Hamas. The message is to prioritize the the women and children, uh, it's the message to Hamas as well. Before long, others joined. Brodich's brother lives in Toronto and came here for support. These are, you know, kids who have their... Unbelievable. The list of presumed hostages includes two Canadians. Another Israeli, whose family is from Canada, Tiferet Lapido, was also thought to be among the hostages until this week. <laughs> The 23-year-old's body was just recovered from the music festival site. Her funeral was delayed by 30 minutes because the mourners couldn't be consoled. We're burying our kids. This is pure hate against Jews. People say they're animals. They're not animals. Animals just kill to eat, to survive. They kill because they hate. Labado's father is from Saskatchewan. We hope the Canadian people will support Israel and most, most right fight against evil. A Hamas spokesperson says the foreign hostages are their guests who will be released when circumstances allow. It's clear from the messaging that Hamas is trying to put forward a friendlier face. But the unspeakable pain caused by so many young lives lost is not so easily painted over. 
you use the phrase unspeakable pain. And, you know, I'm sure there are many of us, all of us over the last 10 days that have just tried to imagine the sheer horror families are living, families that have lost people in that attack. Every day, new pieces of information come out and it's just so hard to digest. And then the families of those hostages, you know, waffling between outright despair, hope, fear for what their loved ones have been through and, and fear for what might come ahead. And then, of course, there's the information information and disinformation campaign that's going on. You know, there were reports that there could potentially maybe be an exchange of hostages for Palestinian prisoners in the days ahead. It's not clear where those lie. And then, of course, as night fell in the region last night, there was that explosion on the other side at the Gaza hospital, killing potentially hundreds of people, killing potentially hundreds. And, and those are numbers that come from the Hamas run health officials, and then Hamas quick to point the finger at Israel, and then Israel saying that the strike did not come from them, that according to their intelligence information, the Islamic Jihad terrorist organization is responsible for this. And so that will be a huge part of the conversation. I just, the pain in that region and the emotions, it's it's really hard to fathom. And of course, Greg, U.S. President Joe Biden is now there navigating this. And as we watch from here, all the questions about the broader implications for that region. Yeah, Biden uh, arriving there early this morning, our time, and the hope had been that he would have a meeting, a summit of, of sorts with, with other countries in the region, in Jordan. That meeting was ceremoniously uh, cancelled, so uh, obviously the tension as high as it's been in a long, long time in that part of the world, and uh, concerns on many levels, including uh, how do other countries react in, in the face of, of what we're seeing on, on both sides of the of the border between Gaza and Israel, Brett. You can stay up to date at cjob.com and globalnews.ca. I don't care what you say, Sarah. You won't take my snooze button away from me. <laughs> you hear that sleep study business? That, that those who go back to bed for a few more minutes actually get 13 minutes less sleep compared to those who never snooze? Which makes yeah. sense, statistically yeah. speaking, but I'm not buying the idea that you don't feel more rested. I know it's just a game and a trick that we play on ourselves, but I'm falling for the trickery. This morning, I almost got up after my first snooze. That a boy. And I thought, ah, I think I'm good to go. Nah, I want one more <laughs> snooze, which became three more snoozes. Uh -huh. So, uh -huh. yeah, it is a dumb game. Now, that's that's the problem. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, Loren, I understand you're on location today at the Leaf ahead of the swearing-in today, and you we were discussing the tropical biomes, and you have uncovered the truth on the temp. <laughs> I don't know, but it's been a series of investigations here that I've undertook, taken in the last 12 minutes. So as they set up for the swearing-in in the lobby area, where on the right-hand side or the east side is the tropical biome, uh, I've been told that the temperatures range inside the biome, where all the beautiful plants and flowers are, and the waterfall, 24 to 36 degrees Celsius from spring to fall. So it could be upwards of 30 degrees in there right now. And then it cools down slightly 15 to 26 degrees in the coldest months. But again, that's temperature. And Greg, as always, we have wonderful people in our audience who know more than us. And we have to factor in the humidity as well. Yeah, the humidity is uh, an issue. And we got a, pic a picture from one of our friends who had a behind-the-scenes tour. And uh, earlier this summer, when it was 27 degrees outside, it was 42.8 degrees Celsius inside. The <laughs> 
Yeah, it makes me wonder when when would be the best time of year to visit? Would it be better to go in the summer when you're already just wearing a t-shirt and shorts? Or in the winter when you might be, you know, you've got your park on your sweater and potentially long johns and boots. You're giving me far too much to think about when we had that. <laughs> no, I think it's both. The winter would be great because when we get to that part, which we do every winter, no matter how many years we've been through it, where you just think, I need to get to like a tropical destination, and then you open your wallet and realize that's not on the agenda, you come here. Good call. Put on your swimsuit. There you go. Right. Get that- under that waterfall. I'm sure they'd really appreciate that. <laughs> <laughs> Irish Spring, head and shoulders. What are you doing? That- ah, the water's out at my apartment. Headline at CJOB.com. Uncultured lout dragged out of the leaf for a waterfall. Like a seri- What's that movie? Is it like Blue Lagoon or something? You could really create your own, uh, <clears throat> you know. All right. So PG-13. In, in the meantime, it was PLD's return to WPG last night at CLC. <laughs> a lot of acronyms. Okay, so the Winnipeg Jets welcome back a player which spurned them for the bright lights and sandy beaches of Southern California. Pierre-Luc Dubois waiting until last night to score his first goal of the season. Of course, it had to happen here. The fans didn't exactly give him the warmest of welcomes in the Jets' second home game of the season. But in the end, the Kings laid an old-fashioned beat down on the Jets. Here's your sounds of the game. And the puck is dropped, and it's showtime from downtown Winnipeg. Back with the line, Morrissey winds up shooting, scores! No, they wave it off! It's waved off. The light went on, but it's waved off. Back to where the line, Morrissey. Far side, Connor shoots, and it's gloved down by Cam Talbot. In toward the corner, Dubois. Back out in front, the shot stop, rebound, they score. Pierre-Luc Dubois on the putback. It's an even strength goal, and Los Angeles opens up the scoring. It's 1-0 for the Kings. Along the boards, he lost the puck. Out in front, the shot, they score. Trevor Moore, Johnny on the spot. Good work by Los Angeles to win the puck battle. And it came out to Moore, and he beats Hellebach, and it's 2-0 Los Angeles. Morrissey makes a spin move away from Grunstrom to the near side for Shifley shooting. And it's stopped by Talbot going post to post. Back to the near side is Moore across the line. Shoots, scores. From the blue line, Trevor Moore with his second goal of the night and third point, and it's 4-0 Los Angeles. Send it back to the line. DeMello shoots, stop, rebound, they score! Mark Shifley with the putback. And Winnipeg will get on the board. Shifley's third of the year to tie Kyle Connor. And it's 5-1 Los Angeles. Back toward the line, and Los Angeles is going to win game one of this three-game series. After a scoreless first period in which the Jets carried the play, they gave up five straight goals before they finally got their only goal late in the third period. That from Mark Scheifele. A lot to unpack from the on-ice performance last night, including an injury to former King Gabe Velarde. However, perhaps more concerning than the four-goal loss, Brett Loren, the almost 4,000 empty seats at Canada Life Centre. The Jets didn't sell out their home opener on Saturday and announced attendance of 13,410, raised many eyebrows of concern. Well, last night, the announced attendance 
11,226 downright jaw dropping. This is a number unimaginable pre pandemic. It would have been a number probably concerning back in the late 80s and early 1990s at the Winnipeg Arena and the early days of the conversations about the future of the Winnipeg Jets 1.0, the 4 0. Stanley Cup champion, Vegas Golden Knights come to town tomorrow night. Leah Hextall joins us at 8.35 to talk Jets. But Loren, that number of empty seats has a lot of people talking. I woke up at about 11.30 last night, made the mistake of opening my phone to check the score because I had to shut things off for the third period. I was shocked by the score. But then when the attendance number came out and all the conversation around it, I have to say I had a very restless sleep. Well, here's the thing. And, and, you know, you could talk about product on ice or what we did or didn't do in the last season, you know, playoff hopes and all the rest. But I really just think there's a lot of people who are reflecting on their bottom line. And last week we talked about the WSO and its struggles. And people, you know, where are you putting your ticket purchases? Where are you putting your dollars if you have any extra? And I think that might be a big part of the decision going into do I or do I not go? to a jet game tonight and there are many like me who used to have no problem driving in for a game after I came home from work but when you factor in gas prices and all the rest you know we've been eating and eating and eating so many things I think there'll be a big concern for months to come until we start to get some of this inflationary pressures under control because people just don't their dollar can only stretch out so far. So as Greg mentioned, Leah Hextall joins us at 8.35 for our weekly Wednesday Jets chat. At 7.55, Paul Edmonds, well, you just heard his voice in the sounds of the game, but he's got the Wednesday commentary. And he says there are some bright spots in that four-goal defeat, so he'll break some of that down. And Loren mentioned the WSO. Just a heads up that tomorrow morning, just after 8.30, we are going to speak with Julian Pelicano from the Winnipeg Symphony Orchestra to talk about this week's night at the movies. They're performing the music live for Frankenstein, and they're doing it at the Burt. So we'll get those details tomorrow. But in the meantime, up next, we switch from hockey to football. We want to send you to the Bomber game on Saturday, and we'll tell you how you can win those tickets after we look at your forecast on CJOB. It is Mackling, McGarry, and McNabb. Loren McNabb on location today at the Leaf, ahead of the big swearing-in ceremony, the historic ceremony. And we want to touch on something they were discussing yesterday on the shift, our overnight show. We heard this on the way in. And they were talking, Loren, about fast food, fast food secret orders, and uh, and fast food, like weird combos or things or tricks that you might do, Right. Yeah, like kind of fast food hacks. You might go in and say, like, I don't order it straight off the menu. Like, there's some people who might, oh, they've cranked up the music here at the Leaf for the swearing-in ceremony later this morning, in case you hear some dance tunes in the background. Um, Things like you might order three cheeseburgers to make a quarter pounder, which saves you money. Or you go to Wendy's and you get the Baconator, but then you add the chili sauce. Or, you know, like all the different things that might make your meal better. And so we thought we'd talk this morning about your fast food hacks, akin to, say, the French fries in the old... What is that called? The Frosty the at Frosty. Wendy's? The Frosty, yes. Yeah, yeah, that, I've, I've tried that. Uh, I don't, it's not for me, the, the, the sweet and salty combination, but uh, I figured I, it's in there. Like, it's become a part of their marketing. So. It has, mm-hmm. because so many people do it. I've tried the Frosty on the Junior Bacon Cheeseburger. That's good. Really? For what? me. Yeah. That's Long a time ago. 
And there was a, there was something a, a, a month ago. There, I guess it was a TikTok thing. They were talking about this secret McDonald's burger called the McBrunch Burger that uh, you can only order it at 10.35. So it's a combination of like breakfast food and burger on the same sandwich. Mm. So that I, I not saying go to McDonald's at 10.35 and ask for a McBrunch Burger. That's just what was out there in the world. So at 204-780-6868, tell us your fast food tricks for a chance to win bomber tickets for Saturday's game versus the Edmonton Elks. Sarah McCarthy, why don't we start with you? Sure. Mine is just a drink. So, I I mean, Manitoba, like Slurpee capital, of course. I've always grown up having Slurpees, though, too, in Dryden. And I think my combination is just kind of what may throw people. I don't know. But you start with Coca-Cola. Then you go blue raspberry and add orange. I know. I know. I, I'm getting looks here. Right. <laughs> There's nothing wrong with that. And, like, the trick is I think people do, like, like three chunks. No, no, no. You got to layer it throughout. So it takes some time. <laughs> so just little tiny like stripes, these three like stripes of Coca-Cola, blue raspberry and orange. And I love it. Mine is Coke at the bottom, mm-hmm. then Dr. Pepper, then Pepsi. See, but those are also similar. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you get Coke and Pepsi. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, and how many people do that with Slurpees, Sarah? They, they'll they'll, so go, they'll run down the gauntlet, run the whole gauntlet of mm-hmm. flavors. Um, and sometimes I do end up with Coke and Pepsi in the Slurpee because I'm just trying to get the best slush. True. As opposed to I th- the, I think the it, consistency. I think it, yeah. I think it makes yeah. a difference adding Coke and Pap, you know, putting hmm. and a little bit of Dr. Pepper in there too. I think that's what I find. Are you trying to make like, it taste like it's amaretto or something? <laughs> I don't know what I'm doing. I'm trying to, again, I'm trying to make the best, uh, the best slush. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I don't like the flavors. I just like, give me the, give me the straight and narrow. Loren, what about you? Well, the drinks, I, I do that with the Slurpee. I put the orange in the bottom and the Coke at the top. I have definitely been a person who will do like the Junior Whoppers over the Whoppers because it saves money, but it's actually not that much smaller. And I've been known to put, get the, like I like to go where, is it Taco Bell and KFC that are in the same location? But mm-hmm. I get the tacos for the kids so that I can get the hot sauce so then I can then put it on my zinger, like my oh. chicken burger. Yeah. Because all those men, all those fast food joints that claim to have the spicy whatever, it is is never spicy. <laughs> it's just it's it's nonsense. And they say habanero, which is a spicy spicy pepper, and you're like, I don't know where this habanero is from, but it's not habanero for me. <laughs> <laughs> well done, but your tolerance for spicy stuff is I know is I crazy know. good. My kids always say that to me, like, "Is it you, spicy mom, or me, spicy? Like, which spice meter are we using this morning?" So, you know, when I worked at Earl's, I would inevitably go to people's houses and everybody had some Earl's silverware in their drawer. And they had also the glasses that they had thieved from Earl's. And I want to know, Brett McGarry, how much of that Taco Bell hot sauce do you have stashed in your house? None. Because that is the best hot sauce there is. I didn't like it. Really? Uh, even at the time, there was they, well, I, yeah, the hot sauce was too hot for me, and the mild was just kind of meh. But my tolerance for spicy food has increased. Like it's been twenty five years since I worked in well, Taco Bell. Well, that stuff would still be, I think, fine to consume. <laughs> On the it's subject been of years since Greg worked at Chi Chi's, and we still have to hear about that. Everything. So surely, 
On the subject of the mixing of the drinks, though, there was one time I was at the drive-thru and I asked this guy, what do you want to drink? And he says, I don't know. Surprise me. So I'm like, I don't have time for this. So I just ran it down the whole thing and gave him a swamp drink. And then he takes a sip and says, yeah, that's good. (laughs) Uh, Poitras, what about you? Uh, I like to put the fries in my, uh, my McDouble. Oh. I like to get the small fries, uh-huh. like to cram the French fries in there, and I like to just. Usually, I'm driving, so I'll just eat that all in one uh, in one go. handful. Yeah, sometimes I'll do the junior chicken as well. I like the Mc, the McChicken sauce with the French fries. That's pretty that. awesome. That's good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. it's like the uh, mayo, like in uh, Holland, right? They like to do mayo with fries instead yeah. of ketchup. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah mayo and fries is good. Oh yeah, I, I do that at McDonald's. McChicken sauce. Dip, oh, baby. dip my fries in there, and I put extra McChicken sauce on like. Any kind of chicken burger is delicious. Yeah? Yeah, oh yeah. Uh, but for me, I remember in junior high and high school, A&W had this burger. It was a se- it was like one of those secret menus. The animal. That's right, the animal burger. It was, what, just <laughs> seven patties. How did you guys know yeah. six about this? It was a double grandpa burger. It was, there was six patties on it. Was it six patties? <laughs> I'm a member of the seven. Legion of Beef as well. I've eaten that thing before, so... <laughs> As my friend Max uh, called it, the Legion of Beef. If you smash that, <laughs> is this a closed society, or yeah, are you well, still accepting new members? It was. It was secret. Can up I until get an now, application until Forche spilled the beans? Wow, yeah, that's right. They. Uh, I went to the keg once, like for my buddy's twenty fourth birthday, and they're like, "Brad, just get the biggest steak on the menu." And then the, the server said, "Well, there's actually one that's not on the menu. I don't know if this still exists. It was called the Kega Mega. The Kega Mega, sure, yeah. And I think it was." I don't know, 24, 30 ounces. That sound about right? Yeah. But it was, I think the reason why it wasn't on the menu is it wasn't that great. Like it was just like a, like a, a, it was a really fatty cut of beef. So half of it was fat, but it was huge. Yeah. And you could order like the, the side lobster tail, the side uh, uh, king crab claws, those sorts of different things. Uh, But you had to be an insider to know exactly how to do it to save a few bucks. Oh yeah? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So here's the question at 204-780-6868. What's your fast food trick? What's the weird thing you like to do with the fast food? Or do you have a secret fast food order? 204-780-6868. It is Mackling, McGarry, and McNabb. Greg, at 735, what is the ant who needed a transplant? It's a book. It's a book about organ transplantation. We've had many conversations about the need for more donors, living donors, people to sign their donation cards for a donation after they they, they pass. And uh, we'll speak to a doctor who performed uh, one of the very first, actually the first uh, kidney transplant in our, successful kidney transplant in our country. He's written this book in order to educate young people about organ transplant. In the meantime, Loren McNabb is on location today at The Leaf, ahead of today's big ceremony, Loren. I don't know if you can hear it, guys. I'm inside the tropical biome now, where, of course, you have this uh, waterfall that is spraying me, actually, as I stand in here. I'm adjacent to where the lobby, uh, the sort of the atrium area where Wab Canoe will be sworn in as the first First Nations premier of a Canadian province province a pretty significant and history making day for manitobans and we're joined now by kelly saunders who's a political science professor at brandon university good morning kelly hi good morning 
I want to just address that, you know, the significance of, of what's to happen uh, just after 10 a.m. when Canoe is sworn in, uh, the Premier-designate Wab Canoe. And I know when we spoke to you before the election, you were getting phone calls from news agencies in different parts of the world. Can we talk a bit about what the eyes of other parts are on Manitoba right now as we look to officially swear in our first First Nations Premier? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, we get stuck in the minutiae details of an election campaign. You know, who's, uh, you know, what, what, what are things looking like on the ground? What seats could possibly flip? But then when you take a step back and look at the larger significance of this, it is not just a change in government. But as you said, I mean, this is really history in the making with the first First Nations premier anywhere in terms of the provinces in this country. So absolutely, I was getting calls from news agencies, not only across the country, but internationally as well. So we truly are on the world map uh, today. and, And that's quite special for us. Kelly, I know that conversation will continue today about the historic significance of Wab Canoe's premiership. But for those of us who are, you know, really looking for this government, this new government to keep its promises and to do things maybe, quote unquote, a little bit differently. Uh, as a sports guy, I always find there are points in a game where, or in a season where you go, oh, this is feeling different than it did last year or or last week. Will there be certain things that you'll be looking for that will tell us whether it's business as usual or perhaps this government is committed and will be doing things differently on Broadway? Mm -hmm, Absolutely. Well, it's going to be really interesting to see who he brings into his cabinet and what size the cabinet is going to be. Uh, We've had a couple of clues. He just mentioned uh, the other day that he's going to have two First Nations women uh, appointed, so which is going to be uh, historic as well. So who those women are going to be. We also know that he's got a number of Métis people as well in his cabinet now. So how, you know, how prevalent are Indigenous people going to be? And then, you know, he's also got a challenge as well, though. He's only he only has two MLAs uh, elected in his caucus that are outside of Winnipeg and the North. So, you know, we're hoping out here in Brandon East that maybe Glenn Samard might be in cabinet and then looking for people like Ron Kostichin as well from Dauphin. And also the size, as I just mentioned, is he going to go with a smaller cabinet at first and then maybe enlarge it as time goes on? Or is he going to have a larger cabinet right from the start? Once this government hits the ground and starts running, what, what are some of the, the big challenges that, that like some of the immediate big challenges that they'll be facing? Yeah, those and those challenges are huge, right? Once we get past the, you know, the, you know, the excitement of an election, our first First Nations premier, this cabinet has to get to work. And they're going to have to start working immediately because the challenges are huge and the expectations are huge, right? When you have the premier saying, you know, I'm going to fix chronic homelessness over eight years, I'm going to fix health care. Those are major monumental challenges. And and I think expectations are high amongst uh, Manitobans. So he's got to get working immediately, especially on the health care file, but also issues around, as I said, homelessness, affordability, and those aren't easy problems to fix. They're not easy problems, Kelly, but uh, there's also this question of, of the patience, the patience the Manitoba public might have to wait. Is it different now than it maybe even has been in years prior, given the levels of frustration that might be out there? Right. I mean, there's always a bit of a honeymoon period for a new government. We always give them a bit of a chance to kind of settle in and figure out where the bathrooms are in the legislature before we, we start expecting results. 
But I think you're right. This time, I, I don't think there's going to be that honeymoon period. I think people want results now because we've been struggling, right? We've been struggling with a healthcare system that many people see as broken. We struggle through the pandemic. You know, affordability is, you know, is through the roof in terms of lack of affordability. People are really struggling financially. So I think that there's not a lot of patience to go around. And, and that's probably going to be, uh, you know, the premier, the new premier's biggest challenge is trying to temper down some of those expectations for quick results. And speaking of those quick results, Kelly, Bob Canoe has said he will recall the legislature prior to Christmas. So a, a fall session. I don't know how long that session will be. How quickly can you start turning promises into legislation and action? Mm-hmm, right. Well, we've got to, as you, he's got to get his MLAs sworn in. Uh, of course, all the MLAs have to be sworn in. Then they have to prepare a throne speech, which will really map out what their legislative agenda is going to be over the next 12 months. And so I'm sure they're busy working on that already behind the scenes and, and preparing. And they've been working ever since the election to, to in that transition moment. But um, all these things take time, right? You have new MLAs that have to uh, learn about life in the legislature and, and, and all the work that goes on and, and just the processes and procedures. You've got new cabinet ministers that have to get to know their staff and understand what their departments have been doing and, and build those relationships. So that all takes time. But absolutely, you need to start introducing some bills probably as early as this fall. Kelly Saunders, Brandon University political scientist. Thank you for the time as always. We appreciate your insight. Thank you. My pleasure. It is 7.13 with Mackling McGarry and McNabb. Once again, the ceremony will be broadcast at cjob.com. It is Mackling McGarry and McNabb. We are asking you this morning for a chance to win bomber tickets about your fast food tricks, your fast food secrets, your fast food hacks. Mike... Mike Shrive says, I remember 10 years ago, my buddies showed me the most amazing burger at McDonald's. You take a McDouble, you split it in half, Mm -hmm. then you take a junior chicken bun Mm -hmm. and everything and put it in the middle of the McDouble. And I was told, well, I can't finish that. But um, (laughs) sometimes when you read a text message cold, you you see that there's a nasty word in there that you can't share in the air. (laughs) But... That, yeah, combining the chicken sandwich into the body where, of the Where burger. does the chicken go? It goes inside. Okay, because like I heard, only heard the about the bun. I only heard about the bun. I was trying, okay, so like to eat the chicken like on its own? On the side, he says or? the chicken bun and everything, and you put it. In, oh, so you, you take okay. the chi- just okay. take the chicken sandwich and shove it into the inside the double cheeseburger. All right, so a lot of bread. That reminds me of there was a David Letterman sketch. And I can't remember the name of the guy, but, you know, he had his little correspondence that he'd send out into the field to, to play tricks and gags. And he sent this guy to McDonald's and uh, Dave was coaching him. He had, a, had him in his ear. And uh, the guy says, I'll get a quarter pounder, a half pounder, a triple quarter pounder, a pounder. And then they stopped him and said, what are you doing? I'm trying to customize my own five pounder. Jesus. <laughs> 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 yeah, could you imagine trying to order and keep a straight face with David Letterman in your ear? Good luck with that. Uh, the, on the subject of the, the, the this habanero isn't habanin, as Loren mentioned last half hour, if you're just tuning in. The, the, the level of spice, like uh, you... Where does the line end for you on Because i I'm, I'm always been fascinated with those who can tolerate it and even enjoy it. Well, I don't want to be uncomfortable, right? Like, I don't want to, like 
but I also want to be uncomfortable. So it's like a pleasure is pain, torture type thing. I don't know. Like I don't want to, I don't ever want to try one of those ones that's like 9 million times harder than a habanero pepper. I'm not interested in throwing up or like a near death experience, but I, I love it when I have like that nasal type feeling when it's a wasabi. And then when it comes to heat on a salsa, I want it to slow me down. You know, where you pause and you're not like just cramming your face. Like you're like, whoo, that's got some kick. And then you got to settle into it. Oh, that whoo, that, that yes. little breath. And then, yeah. Yes. And then a little bit of the sweats. And yes. then what about your Caesar? Like, are you heavy oh, extra, Tabasco, Worcester? Yeah. Like, what do you do? Extra spicy, extra Tabasco. And when I say extra spicy, and then I have to say, and when I say extra spicy, I mean, just bring me the Tabasco bottle. And then they do. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I remember watching a guy eating some hot wings, one of my buddies, and he was just sweating and panting. And I said, are you enjoying that? And he's like, oh, yeah, this is so good. I'm like, I don't get it, man. I don't get it. But tell us your fast food tricks for a chance to win bomber tickets. It is Mackling, McGarry, and McNabb. Before we introduce our next guest, for those who might just be tuning in, Loren McNabb, where do you find yourself this morning? I am down at the Leaf in Assiniboine Park, this beautiful new space that opened a few years ago, a $130 million venue with the indoor waterfall and the biome and the tropical plants. And I've basically just been roaming around enjoying myself as they set up for the swearing in of Wab Canoe, the first First Nations premier of a Canadian province. A historical day will unfold just after 10 this morning. He then will unveil his cabinet and, and then the work starts. But right now it's the workers at the Leaf that are setting up chairs for what's expected to be some 200 people. And then we're also looking to have different dances take place uh, with different Indigenous groups. There's a song that's been specially written by an elder for the premier designate who will soon be premier of Manitoba. And so that's where I am today and for the next few hours, guys. Also a heads up at 8.35, Leah Hextall joins us for our weekly Wednesday Jets chat. And by the way, our question of the day at cjob.com, why do you think attendance is low? Because the attendance last night, 11,226. Your options are downtown safety, in-game experience, team needs improvement, too expensive, all of the above, or it's early, it'll get better. Cast your vote, cjob.com. This week, Winnipeg is playing host to the Canadian Society of Transplantation's annual scientific meeting. Hundreds of medical professionals within the Canadian donation and transplantation community are here to highlight advances in science and leading clinical practices to continue improving transplantation in Canada. And among those visitors is our next guest, former director of the Multi-Organ Transplant Program at Ontario's London Health Sciences Centre. He retired in 2015 after a 40-year medical career, including performing Canada's first ever successful liver transplant back in 1982 and he continues to raise awareness about organ and tissue donation our guest is also the author of the book the ant ant who needed a transplant an effort to introduce the essence of this subject of organ transplantation to young children dr bill wall is an advocate for the importance of educating youth about the powerful impact of Organ Donation joins us in studio. Good morning, Dr. Wall. Good morning, and thanks for having me. Well, welcome to Winnipeg. It's wonderful to have you here and with us in the studio. We know you have a special tour plan for for your time here in Winnipeg. We'll ask you about that in a minute. But tell us about this book. And some people might say, oh, maybe that's too much for, for youngsters to, to process. 
Yes, um, I can see that point. I thought that uh, it was time to introduce the concept of organ donation to uh, youngsters at an early age and tell a story uh, in a way that they could understand and explain to them that it's basically an act of kindness that can save a life. That's really what it comes down to. And I searched around for written materials for my own grandchildren to educate them about this subject, and I couldn't find anything. Certainly not a, an appropriate story, an age-appropriate story that I thought uh, told the real story of this for youngsters. So that convinced me that there was an educational need to be met, and that's why I, I wrote the book. Well, of course, Doctor, there's, you know, young kids need them, babies, adults, there's, you know, and a wide range of ages where someone might need to have a transplant. And we know that need is great, and it's included so many conversations over the years about how we boost organ donation, you know, conversations around presumed consent and all the rest. Where is participation with organ donation these days in Canada? The situation is that there are about 4,000 people, more than 4,000, waiting for vital organ transplants. And in any given year, perhaps 10 or even 15, maybe 20% waiting for certain vital organs will not get an organ transplant in time. And that's the sad reality of the situation. It's very unfortunate because transplantations at an extremely high level today. The chances of success with an organ transplant are superb. Uh, but unfortunately, all the needs are not being met. We understand that you are visiting some schools tomorrow. Who's going with you? Yes, uh, the school is Riverbend School in the Seven Oaks District. And accompanying me to do a school reading to grade two, two class is uh, a gentleman, Mark Miles, who I met for the first time yesterday. He had a heart transplant about eight months, eight years ago, and he's perfectly well and does uh, everything that he used to do prior to becoming unwell. Um, so it'll be nice to do a reading as a fantasy with the aunt who needed a transplant and then having a real person there who's had a transplant to demonstrate his story to the students. Off the top, mention the fact that you successfully conducted the first ever successful liver, liver transplant back in 1982. And you and I were speaking before we came into the studio and you said you recently saw this individual and, and spent time with them. Yes, yes, I did. Uh, she's a wonderful person. She's more than 40 years now after her liver transplant. She is perfectly well. She looks perfectly well. And each time I see her, it's an inspiration. And that's what can be accomplished today. And for most people who are fortunate enough to get their transplants, it restores people to full and active, productive lives in the community. And they live for decades after. What's changed over the years since that transplant? I mean, and that's a big question, I know. But, you know, from what we can do with liver, pieces of livers, what we can live on in terms of what organs can and, and cannot be moved, I mean, are... Where are we today versus 30 years ago? Oh, it's a, there's been a, a quantum leap in the improvement in outcomes in organ transplantation, and it was heralded by cyclosporin, the superior immunosuppressant that was discovered in the late 1970s and introduced in the early 80s. And we were fortunate to be at the ground level of using it, and the person we just referred to, who's 40 years after her liver transplant, she's on a, just a tiny dose of that drug still today. That was a game changer. And transplantation, which generally was not successful at that time in the early, uh, late 1970s, um, most people had the feeling that it had no future. But cyclosporin was a quantum leap. It was a game changer and the proliferation of transplants and transplant centers worldwide was uh, 
a spectacular uh, outcome. It, it truly represents one of the greater achievements of medical science. Our guest in studio is Dr. Bill Wall, who is the author of The Ant, Who Needed a Transplant, illustrated by Dave Hill. Coincidentally, we have a guest booked at 935 who is an author whose name is Dave Hill. I'm assuming it's not the same Dave Hill, but uh, the illustrations are beautiful. Curious to know from your perspective, what was it like, you know, after your long medical career? I'm sure you wrote lots of papers and stuff. What was it like to write a, a just a book for kids? Well, this was a real departure from my usual writing, but it was very enjoyable. Uh, I decided at the very beginning it should be told as a fantasy because the stark nature of donation and transplantation, the human story, uh, in my mind, was a, a bit of a, a burden for young minds to understand. And I thought if it was told as a fantasy, then this would be much easier. It would be it would lighten the seriousness of the subject, and at the same time, it would increase its intrigue value for youngsters. Uh, but at the same time, it had to reflect the reality of organ donation and transplantation, which the book does. And I was very fortunate to get this Dave Hill. You mentioned he's in Scotland. And we had a great back and forth with uh, these ants and having the ants have human characteristics, but at the same time, keeping them as ants. And as you mentioned, uh, everyone who has commented on the book has commented on the illustrations, and he's given a nice soft watercolor effect to the illustrations. And it's a, a gentle effect, which is what the story needs. So many books today are bright blues and reds and yellows, like a Superman comic. And we didn't want that. We wanted something that has an excellent range of colors. And uh, he's accomplished that with a nice watercolor effect. So it's a gentle effect. And his, um, his drawings of the facial expressions of these ants, I think, is, is really a superb job. There's an impressive number of books being delivered across this country. You want to share that with our listeners before we let you go, Doctor? Well, through the generosity of a London couple, Angie and Cal Stiller, and the Canadian Society of Transplantation, they've come together with very substantial funding to allow us to print several thousand copies of this book to be distributed to school boards across the nation. And at the by the end of October, more than 4,000 copies will have been sent to about 82 to school boards representing every province and every territory. So our, our aim is to get the book disseminated widely for grades kindergarten to grade one, two, three, which means about 1.4 million children in school today who could, who could be reading The Ant Who Needed a Transplant with a teacher. And we think that's the most effective way to do it. And I'm so terribly appreciative for the Canadian Society of Transplantation and the Stiller family for sponsoring this objective. Sign up for life.ca. That's Manitoba's transplant portal. I encourage you to visit it if uh, any of the conversation we've uh, had this morning uh, has touched you in anywhere. Dr. Bill Wall, thank you so much for writing this book and for coming to visit us uh, here in Winnipeg and in the studio this morning. I've enjoyed it. Thank you very much. And I will tell you this, Dr. Wall, uh, if I get recruited in February for I Love to Read Month, I know which book I'm bringing with me. So thank you for this. 
Tackling McGarry and McNabb, Loren McNabb's on location at the Leaf today, where Manitoba's premier designate, Wab Canoe, will officially be sworn in and appoint his cabinet. Want to talk more about Jets' attendance in a moment, but before that, we are asking you to give us your fast food tricks and fast food hacks for a chance to win bomber tickets. Like Don P., who says, ask for, there's a simple one, ask for fries without salt. Usually then they're always hot. All you have to do is have packets of salt in your car, and then you can really enjoy your hot fries and put them on your burger or in your mm. Frosty or whatever. Always yeah. delicious. Well, I had you guys a, are eating right now, aren't you? I can tell. <laughs> I was trying to gloss over that fact. <laughs> Food from the bombers. You know, you mentioned I'm down here at the Leaf, Brett, for ahead of the swearing in, and, and it, what just happened, I'm going to tie it into many things we're talking about this morning. I was just talking with a musician with the Norman Chief dance group they they do traditional metis dancing and he comes up to me and he's like wow this is going to be a really amazing day because of course it's the swearing in of the first first nations premier of a canadian province but then brad he goes on to say i was at the jets game last night (laughs) yeah we stared at each other i was like he's like good first period he's like you know i bought a pierre luc dubois jersey last year no no you know it just makes me love this province right for all the things of of the way you can unite and connect for all sorts of reasons and so uh yeah i just thought i wanted to share that little anecdote well our question of the day at cj and you're right we are eating bombers food and we'll tell you about that in a moment here it kind of ties in with the fast food stuff but um we our question of the day the announced attendance in tuesday's winnipeg jets game was eleven thousand two twenty six. the home opener wasn't a sellout either why do you think attendance is low? So your options are downtown safety, the in-game experience, team needs improvement, too expensive, all of the above, or it's early, it'll get better. So you can cast your vote on that at cjob.com. So far, uh, 69% have all of the above for mm. the, the, uh, the, uh, the non-optimistic options. So well, and so that's, hey, that's a concern, right? If you've got all these factors that people can point to as to why they're not attending games, and we certainly don't know if these are people who would otherwise attend games, if they've ever attended a game. I'm not trying to, uh, you know, to bias the uh, results in one way or the other, other than to, to note that since day one, this has been an expensive ticket. It's been a commitment. The investment of time and money for those that go to the games. I, I tip my hat to you. I did it. I did it for nine years and then just couldn't really do it anymore in terms of the time. And then the economic impact in our house of sitting down and realizing how much money we'd spent on Jets tickets over the years, Loren, was mm-hmm. eye opening to us. And so we just had to make some other decisions. And I don't think this is a matter, though of people not wanting to go to the games. I was at the game on Saturday, was blown away. Like the, just about every single person has some sort of Jets merchandise on, a jersey, a hat, both uh, multiple Jets pieces of paraphernalia. So I, I think the, 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 the impact and the love affair with the Jets in terms of the team and the franchise is, is alive and well. But I think a lot of people who would like to go to the games just simply can't for a variety of, of reasons. I think I, 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 I'm like I was in that boat too. We had season tickets for several years and they just opted out in part because of the time commitment for us when you have kids and activities. 
I just, I just think that if you're going to go to a game, the, the price of the ticket is, is one thing. It's the add-ons that I think people include that we maybe shouldn't. But there's the parking and the eating and the drink and all the rest. So it's hundreds of dollars evening, Brett. But, you know, so can be going to the symphony or a show or anything like that. And I think that's where when, when times get tough, where are you making your cuts? Yeah, like a buddy of mine said, he wants to go see the Book of Mormon when it comes mm-hmm. back to Winnipeg in January. Uh, he wanted to go with his wife. But when he added up the, the cost of the tickets that are remaining, the, and then when you factor in the other things that you pointed out, he just said, yeah, I don't think we can do it. Can't justify this expense. And even if you get, like, if I get a, a free ticket for a Jets game, it's still, mm-hmm. like, I could blow through... $100 without breaking a sweat if I decided I want the full experience where I'm going to have a few drinks, where I want to get a Jets dog. Uh, because, yeah, you don't have to. Like when I used to go, I used to go to the movies for years. With, I wouldn't get popcorn, wouldn't get a drink. I'd just bring a pack of gum and I'd watch my movie and I would leave. And now I can't. I made the mistake of getting popcorn once and I still remember the movie. It was Unstoppable, that Denzel Washington movie with the train that's out of control. Yeah. And I was starving. I'm like, ah, I'm going to break down and get some popcorn. And that's the last time. That movie's like 10 years old, 12 years old. And I haven't, I, I, I have to have popcorn when I go to the movie, but that's expensive and it adds up. And it's, it's to the point where I think I don't go to the movies as often. Because I know if I go to the movies, I'm going to have to have popcorn. Yeah, the concessions are, are expensive. You know, I started going to games when I was six, seven years old with my dad. Hmm. And I think tickets are, my dad had partial season tickets in the old arena for the WHA Jets. And I think his ticket price was either five seventy five or, or, or seven seventy five, And uh, we ha- had a rule. I had to decide which intermission I wanted to have my one snack whether it was going to be a drink or an ice cream sandwich or whatever, I got a chance, one intermission to have one thing. And now when I go, I have multiple, multiple visits to the concession stand. So I think the way we attend these games and these events has changed as well, Brett. So uh, lots of discussion on this uh, throughout the day and over the next several days, I imagine, on CJOB. But we do have to tell you about the Ugh, game day special at IG Field on Saturday, October 21st for the Intercept Cancer and High School Football Night. By the way, the, the, the over a thousand high school football players will be in attendance. Awesome. Intercept Cancer Pink merchandise is available for purchase with a port, uh, portion of the proceeds going to the Cancer Care Manitoba Foundation. save-on-foods gift cards will be given out to fans as they enter the stadium, and they'll have 400 youth performing a cheer and dance routine at halftime. Meanwhile, the the food is the new Fat Boy Burger, and it's pretty good. Tasty chili, eh, Greg? It hits right away. Absolutely. It's got flavor. So you can get that at section 106 and 130. Red Zone, as well as 206-229 Gridiron Grill, 413.75. And, of course, get your tickets at BlueBombers.com. Uh, they're going fast. We've talked about the fact of the lack of ticket sales at Jets games. No such problem uh, with the Blue Bombers. They're looking to sell out their fourth consecutive regular season game. It is Mackling, McGarry, and McNabb. Loren McNabb is broadcasting live at the Leaf. Who are we talking to, Loren, at 9.05? 
Well, just after 9.05, we'll talk to former MLA Kevin Chief, who's also uh, dancing is part of the ceremony this morning with the Norman Chief dancers. And, and we want to talk about this historic day with the first First Nations Premier of Canadian provinces officially being sworn in just after 10. But what does that mean to him and what are we looking for going forward? So we'll speak with Kevin Chief just after 9, Brett. And a reminder, we've got bomber tickets to give away for Saturday. We're asking you at 204-780-6868 about your fast food tricks, your fast food hacks. Like Calvin says, what about the land, air, and sea burger? <laughs> you got a quarter pounder, a McChicken, a filet fish and you mash no. them all together. No, no I'm gonna you don't. I'm going to ask my kid about this, if there's a way to <laughs> ring that in. I don't know how they do that. When people are creating these burgers, are they putting the burger in the, like, not just the meat? They're talking putting, like, just a burger within the burger? You know, like, so there's six buns? Well, that was my question with that hack with the McChicken sandwich. So Yes. Uh, I'm, I'm thinking you would need at least the bottom of that bun. But if you're saying put the whole thing in there, well, that's a lot of a lot of tasty bread. Like a, a clubhouse. <laughs> you're going to need, like, a like a full stick to pin it together. Like, not just a toothpick. <laughs> stick. But just, like, like a ba- like a piece of bamboo that I use to hold my plants together. Just jam it in there. there you Can go. you please pass me my fast food <laughs> skewer? I'm headed to the drive-thru. <laughs> Sling it over your shoulder. <laughs> uh, we'll pick a winner at 9.15. In the meantime, last night in Seattle, Kale McCarr of the Colorado Avalanche made NHL history as he scored his 250th career point, and he reaches that mark faster than any other NHL defenseman. Yes, even faster than Bobby Orr by six games. And our next guest was in the building as the Avalanche defeated the Kraken in Seattle. ESPN hockey analyst and commentator Leah Hextall joins us at 6.38 Pacific. (laughs) Leah, thank you so much for this. Good morning, all. How are you doing? I'm so sorry if I'm a little punch drunk today, but I'm on Pacific time as I'm getting set to head home to Winnipeg. But it was quite the sight to see McCarr do that in 241 games, 250 points to pass the great Bobby Orr. I mean, you talk about an elite defenseman and someone who's going to change the game. That's the kid. Well, you know, so many of these franchises, uh, different reasons to keep an eye on them. Uh, let, this is our first conversation of the hockey season on air, Leah. So let's set things up and go back to our final visit last spring. You said loud and clear three players needed to be off the Jets roster. Blake Wheeler and uh, PL, don't call me Pierre-Luc Dubois, have moved <laughs> to opposite coasts. And the third, Mark Shifley. And, of course, Shifley shocked just about everyone when he and Connor Hellbuck signed identical seven-year contract extensions. So two out of three ain't bad. We'll discuss the significance of those signings in a moment. But Shifley himself, as a player, looks somewhat reborn this season, I would say. He has three goals in three games so far. Leah Hextall, go. That he does. And so let's talk about 55 here. The reason I said that at the end of the season is because I really did not think Mark Shifley was going to have a future here with the Winnipeg Jets. I didn't think he wanted to have a future here with the Winnipeg Jets from what I've seen, his comments and the frustration. But it does seem like he has turned over a new leaf. And it really does help when you signed a seven-year deal for that kind of cash. But he's playing like he wants to live up to this deal, and that's exactly what you want to see. What's impressing me most about him is, yes, 55 getting in on the offense right now. He's leading the charge. But it's what he's doing in the face-off circles. His numbers going into last night were up. 
79% against Florida the other night. He's going operating over 60%. He's admitted himself that he's worked on the faceoffs a lot this offseason, which you need to see. He doesn't enjoy it. He says it's something when you practice, the stick gets up on you or it's really difficult on your wrist. But to see that he took the time, that's a very Sidney Crosby-esque thing to do, which Crosby did earlier in his career when he wasn't getting the numbers in the circle. So it really shows Shifley's commitment to being the best player he can. He's one of the best centers in the game. It's great that Winnipeg still has him. It was a massive signing for both of those. But yeah, two out of three ain't bad. The other two, I still definitely believe shouldn't have been here and I actually believe with those two players gone even though Lowry is the captain I still think that Shifley's got to be the guy in Winnipeg and that means that he has to lead by example on the ice every night and he's doing that so far this season. Lee as we mentioned I'm down at the leaf ahead of the swearing in of the new government and one of the performers had just said to me about an hour ago he's setting up here and he was at the game last night and tells me he made the mistake of getting a Pierre-Luc Dubois jersey last year so so now he thinks you know what's my safe bet and he's thinking Shifley or Hellebuck and and we've been talking an awful lot about the idea that we're talking the word commitment instead of contracts is there a difference there well in the business of hockey there's not really because the contracts reign supreme it is a business and at the end of the day you want to do what's best for you as a player because these guys only have such a short window to do what they do think about it father time comes for everyone in the national hockey league so you really have a little bit of a sweet spot of less than a decade to get your money to do things and get things done so I I do believe it's more about contract than commitment, but it's always nice when they go hand in hand, especially when it comes to players like Shifley and Hellebuck. These are drafted and developed players here in Winnipeg, and if Winnipeg can't keep the players that it drafts, then it's in trouble. And, you know, that's just the bottom line for this franchise. So it's nice to see that they were able to wrap up two cornerstones for the next seven years. Meanwhile, PLD was not exactly given the Timu Solani welcome back to Winnipeg treatment last night, but the hockey club did honor Dubois with a video tribute and thank you for your time here, video message. So were you surprised by any of that? Oh, it's so disingenuous. It's the worst thing I've ever seen. I can't believe they did it. First of all, I'm not a fan of tribute videos to begin with, unless it's the type of player like a Timu Solani that put a franchise on the map and did something so important for it, or a Joe Thornton or Patrick Marlowe when they go back to San Jose after spending the majority of their career there building hockey in a non-traditional market and taking a team to a Stanley Cup final. That's when a tribute video works. If you talk to a lot of general managers around the league, they hate it when players come back and they give them tribute videos. It's the most disingenuous thing, though, because it is Pierre-Luc Dubois. He asked to leave. He did not want to be here. Why are the Jets putting up a tribute video for a player who can come? He can get in front of the cameras. He can say, oh, hey, I love playing here in Winnipeg. You didn't. That's a lie. You asked to leave. Good for you. You got it done. You did the business of hockey, Pierre-Luc Dubois. But let's not act like it's some love affair. It really was disingenuous. The players didn't like it. The fans didn't like it. And I didn't think it was a very good move by the Jets. And I don't want to see that anymore. Blake Wheeler? Does Blake Wheeler get a tribute? Blake Wheeler was the captain. Yeah. He donned the sea. He helped build hockey here in Winnipeg when it came back and led this team on the ice like a horse every night. No matter what you want to say about Blake Wheeler, he was here and wanted to be here. He left with a buyout because of his age. That's a totally different situation. Even got stripped of the sea and still held it together. So I don't have a problem with that. But this is a player who asked 
to leave. Yeah, yeah, we're we're we're, we're agreeing again, Leah, and I don't yeah. like it. So let's find something we can <laughs> we can disagree on here. <laughs> Vegas, Vegas is here tomorrow night, and of course we know what the Golden Knights uh, did last season. They won the Stanley Cup. They dispatched the Jets in four straight games after the Jets won the first game in Vegas. They've looked terrific already so far. They they've yet to lose this year. Um, how they looked in your opinion, um, Manitoba South. Well, first of all, when I was down there on opening night, it didn't seem like they had missed a beat from the moment that they hoisted that Stanley Cup back in June. And you talk about Stanley Cup teams having that Stanley Cup hangover, especially in Vegas. I mean, hangovers in Vegas go together. But it does not look like the champs have missed a beat. I think they're going to come in and they are going to be ready to go. It's going to be a great test for the Winnipeg Jets. And I have to say, you know, look at what they did in Dallas the other night, 3-2 in a shootout win. Those are two heavyweight teams that will both be up at the top of the Western Conference again this year. Both have a chance of winning the Cup. So that was a great battle last night. But we'll see how, uh, you know, like you said, Manitoba South does when they come in. But it'll it'll be a strong challenge for the Jets. And, and they're going to... We're going to need to see more from this team. Um, this is it's going to be interesting to see the update that we get. You'll have to excuse me if one already came up for Velarde after he no. went down. It's a little, okay, good. I didn't think until Rick talked today that we'd get one. But, you know, that knee bend really reminded me of Brandon Tanev's knee bend from Seattle when he got hit by Vegas's Brett Howden, and he's out for four to six weeks, probably an MCL or something along that line. And it was nice to see Velarde skate off on his own. But, I think there's going to be some substantial time missed there. So that's a, that's a tough one for the Jets. So we'll see what they do in their next game against these Golden Knights. Yeah, one of our listeners is pointing out here, Lee, I don't know if it sways you at all, reminding us that PLD's dad works for works for the Moose. I don't care. I don't care if his dad owns the Winnipeg Jets. I don't. I, I'm sorry. That was the most disingenuous thing. Respect your fan base. He asked to leave. You don't do that. We got to have some grit. We got to have some metal here in Winnipeg. You don't want to be here. We don't want to give you a tribute video. So just go away. Go yes. away. Yes, if well I ever said, have to walk Leah. down the back alley, I want Leah with me. I'm taking her with me into any. <laughs> maybe maybe it's because it's early and maybe it's because I'm a hex cell. I don't know. But I saw it last night and I felt like a lot of the fans there. I was like, this is uncomfortable and this is not acceptable. <laughs> <laughs> Leah, you're the best. Thank you so much as always. All right. Thank you, guys. Have a great day. Leah Hextall, an integral part of our Winnipeg Jets coverage here on 680 CJOB. And, of course, she is an ESPN hockey analyst and commentator as well. And, again, a reminder, she's joining us in the Pacific time zone, so we appreciate that. And a reminder that our question of the day at CJOB.com regarding the Jets' attendance which was low, 11,226. Why do you think attendance is low? And so far at CJOB.com, 26% say too expensive. Just under 10 say downtown safety. 3% say the in-game experience. 3% say the team needs improvement. 56% say all of the above. And just under 3% say it's early. It'll get better. Cast your vote, CJOB.com. It's Mackling, McGarry, McNabb. Greg and I are in the studio. Loren, where are you today? I'm down at the Leaf 
where a whole host of people are trickling in because in about an hour's time, Premier-designate Wab Canoe will officially become Premier and officially become the first First Nations Premier of a Canadian province. And joining me now is Kevin Chief, former NDP MLA. You'll also be performing today, Kevin, traditional Métis dancing with the Norman Chief Dance Group. Just a minute ago, we watched Premier-designate Wab Canoe walk in with his headdress, big grin on his face. He won't be designate much longer, that it will become official. Just seeing him come in and knowing what's about to happen in an hour, what's going through your mind? You know, if I had to sum it up in one word, I would say historic. It's, um, it's a, you know, you know being, being part of an event where you see a, a premier being sworn in and, and a cabinet and a government is significant. But like you said, to have the first First Nation premier of a Canadian province be sworn in, um, it's a historic event. And I'm really looking forward to it. And you can't talk about the history of Canada and you can't talk about the history of Manitoba without talking about that unique relationship with First Nation, Métis and Inuit people. And so it's our collective history, whether you're Indigenous or non-Indigenous. And you certainly can't talk about the history of Manitoba unless you talk about the history of, with First Nation and Métis people. So we can't tell people that's important to us. We have to show people. And the best way to show people when something's important to us is to celebrate it. And the best way to celebrate it is through music, is through dance, and is through culture. And so today's event, uh, you know, being able to promote a First Nation Métis and Inuit uh, cultural performance as part of such an historic event, um, you know, I, I, all I can say is, is absolutely wonderful. I'm so very proud to be part of it. We talk an awful lot about representation and what it means to see people like me, like you, like whoever you are in a position um, that you might have never thought you could ever get to, right? And so I'm curious as growing up as a boy and you think about who you were then and what you saw around you then in terms of the people who were in power and what you're going to see now, that must be pretty, pretty powerful for that. Yeah, you know, when I was uh, seven years old, I got on a bus with my friend. His name is Chris Henderson. This is over 40 years ago. And we got on this bus and I sat at the back of the bus and Chris said, Kevin, did you see the bus driver? And this is in the north end of Winnipeg. He said, go look at the bus driver. So I went back, looked at the bus driver and I came back and he said, can you believe it? The bus driver's Aboriginal. We can be bus drivers. And it wasn't until we actually saw a bus driver. We can't tell young people something is possible. You have to be able to show them. And the only way that you can become the premier of, uh, of Manitoba is, is by the support of both Indigenous and non-Indigenous people. And I think what today represents, and I think you're going to see a very diverse cabinet, I think what today represents is it reminds all young people particularly that if you show up, if you work hard, if you are humble and you have a willingness to learn, there is literally no job you can't get. And us as parents and grandparents and as educators, we, we don't have to tell young people that. We can actually show them that because the highest, the highest political office in Manitoba now has a First Nation person who's very well known and is going to have a very diverse cabinet. And so, you know, I, I can't help but think about back 40 years ago. And I thought about that bus driver and I thought, man, I wonder if he understood what a role model he was. But you know the people I want to meet, the hands I want to shake, the people I want to hug is his family for encouraging him. Um, that must have been a tough job 40 years ago. For the people who sat at transit and said, why can't we make it possible to have uh, a, native, a native person be, be a bus driver? And I don't know if they understand the ripples that they created. One boy went on to be the Southern Grand Chief, Chris Henderson. And for myself, I went on to represent that very neighborhood in the Manitoba legislature. So we don't, 
we, we know that a key ingredient to build resilient children, to build resilient young people and families, is you got to have role models. you got to have people that you look up to. And um, I think that that makes this event even more special. You've done this job, not the Premier's job, but you've done the job of being someone in government. Back when the NDP were last in power, you know how hard it can be and that from day one the criticism starts so as much hope as there is today. What would be your advice in terms of how to help connect, to unite, but also move forward on some massive issues of homelessness, health care and more? Yeah, if I, you know, if I was to give any advice to, you know, the premier and his cabinet, it is it is exactly what you said. It's a difficult job. It's it's a massive responsibility. The one thing that I always found very difficult in it was um you it's hard to get used to letting people down. So, it's good to have these moments now. We got to celebrate them and we got to do them the right way, but tomorrow, you know, you know, the work has got to start. And I would say, say to them, look, there's going to be days where you're going to feel like you're disappointing people. It's never going to be enough because the challenges that, that are in front of, of a cabinet and a government, they're so enormous. And so try to encourage one another. Try to be there to support one another. Remember a caucus meeting. Allow people to come in and, and share and vent and highlight their frustrations. Embrace all of that because those are places and spaces that when you're somebody who's elected... It, it takes a long time to get used to. Even when you do something good, you're going to feel like it's not enough. And, and you're walking down the street and people are confronting you with things. We just have less than a minute here, so yeah. I just wanted to ask this final question because the name of your dance group, of course, is Norman Chief yeah. Dancers. That's after your father. What do you think he'd be thinking today if he could see all this, not just you dancing, but what's going to unfold in this historic time? Well, my dad's a former uh, old-time country music singer and gospel singer, so he, he, first off, just the way that we're having this event and bringing in voices and perspectives that probably have never been part of a swearing-in ceremony, I, th- I think the music and the culture would, it'd be so incredibly proud. But my, my dad would be 94 this year, so very similar to Wob's dad. They didn't have the right to vote, to, so to be able to see uh, a First Nation premier uh, being sworn in, he'd be so incredibly proud. And I do believe that he he potentially could be looking down now, you know. I, I'm that kind of person, so. I am too. I thank you for that thought and your time, Kevin. Good luck today and enjoy. Thank you. All right, thank you so much. I'll send it back to you guys. I met uh, Kevin Chief for the first time face-to-face in the early days of something called Hoops from the Heart. It was a fundraiser for cardiac research as well as inner-city youth. We invited over a 1,000 inner-city youth to the University of Winnipeg to watch college basketball, and it might have been the first time they ever set foot on a university campus. And, uh, you know, the idea of seeing people look that look like you doing things that you want to do is very, very powerful, Brett. Mackling McGarry and McNabb for a chance to win bomber tickets for this Saturday's game. We're asking you about your fast food secrets, your fast food tricks, and one of our runners up here. And this ties into what you mentioned earlier, Loren, about the 2 a.m., 3 a.m. after the bar food and how awesome it always yeah, was. Baby. Dan, the Earl of Eli, says, uh, depending on your level of sobriety, I used to love the 7-Eleven 3 a.m. chili dog with nacho cheese sauce. <laughs> And then I later tried one sober. <laughs> I, it's so true. I used to love the hamburger with the nacho cheese sauce. And then you go back like stone cold sober. And you're like, hmm, not the memory that I had of that. 
<laughs> Rob G with an interesting breakfast tip at Red Top. I will not have potatoes, says Rob, but instead I will have a side of chili, and then I pour it all over the eggs, ham, and bacon for some pure protein. Yeah, pure protein, all right. That sounds great. It does sound great. Anything at Red Top's pretty darn good. Greg Carroll in North K has something you might like. Mm -hmm. This is kind of fast food using the infamous hell of a good dip as a garnish for pierogies. Sometimes I mix it with cottage cheese. It's oh. better than just straight sour cream. The pierogies are fast in a box from Costco. Hell of a good dip has more uses than baking soda. Of course, we don't use copious amounts. And don't you dare waste it on cleaning your stovetop. <laughs> <laughs> I will come and Wait, clean. I, don't I will this. come and clean your stovetop for you, Carol, and you can give me the amount of hell of a dip that you might have used. In, in its place. People are using it to clean? No, is this a joke? no, Did I miss no, something? no. Carol's making the correspondence to baking soda and its multitude of cleaning uses. <laughs> so, Got it. Yeah, yeah, Okay, yeah. I'm slow. I'm slow on the uptake it's all right. it's here. A North, I thought, what am I It's missing? a North Kildonan thing. <laughs> but Johnny, yes, for sure, the NK folks. <laughs> Johnny is our winner who says, back in the day, my girlfriend at the time and I would hit up the pal on Portage, drinking well during happy hour. Then we would walk two blocks to McDonald's. There we would order an extra large fry with extra salt, giving us more incentive to drink more. Her idea. And it worked. Then on the way back to dropping her off after the bar, because we go back, we'd hit up Burger King for the Whopper and then turn the corner to McDonald's for their fries. Again, the best combo. And Johnny says that was when the Whopper was a whopper. So Johnny with the full game plan. Yeah, he's got the McDonald's probably at Aaron and Portage there. Yep. And then the uh, Burger King at uh, Toronto, Simcoe and Portage. And oh. then the McDonald's probably over uh, on uh, Sherbrooke and Portage. Oh, okay. Yeah, there the trifecta go. of fast food <laughs> it, in the West End. Is this like the, the pre-hangover hangover cure almost, you think? Like if you're having that combo at 2 a.m.? Oh, yeah. Are you saving yourself? I, I always found that that 2.30 a.m. Burger King helped quite a bit, whether Burger King, McDonald's. A glass of water for every uh, alcoholic beverage he had, and away you go. You're ready for <laughs> softball on Sunday morning. Johnny, congratulations. You're going to the Bomber game. And after Global News at 9.35, we want to tell you about one man's incredible globe-crushing hockey odyssey. Mackling, McGarry, and McNabb. We'll check in with Hal Anderson, the host of Connecting Winnipeg, in our next segment to find out what's coming up after 10 o'clock. But right now, and with Loren McNabb, by the way, broadcasting live at The Leaf. And a reminder, Loren, why are you there today? Well, because I like butterflies, but also... This oh, is yeah, a the butterflies. Significant, yes, I went through the butterfly. What is it? A conservatory butterfly pavilion? Uh, this is, of course, a beautiful space, but something historic is happening in here in just under half hour's time. The first First Nations premier of a Canadian province will be officially sworn in, and that's happening just after 10. I'm actually looking at the broom back here where... The cabinet ministers who will be sworn in are standing, uh, some of the performers, and of course, Premier-designate Wab Canoe in there. He's a popular man, getting his photo taken with different people. His two older sons are in there with them. Lots of smiles in that room as they get to ready to do something historic uh, just after 10. So we'll continue that coverage throughout the morning, Brett. In the meantime, how is this for a book title? The Awesome Game, One Man's Incredible Globe-Crushing Hockey Odyssey. We spoke to this last author, and I had to re read this, Brett, 
four years ago today about no. his last book. Yes, Parking the Moose, one American's epic quest to uncover his Canadian roots. So let's welcome back to the start, not in studio this time, but great to reconnect with our friend Dave Hill. Dave, good morning. Good morning. Thanks for having me. Good to talk to you again. Yeah, we appreciate it immensely. Uh, if you don't follow Dave on uh, Instagram, the social media, I encourage you to do so. Refresh our memories, uh, Dave. You're an American, right? I think you're from Cleveland or that part of the United yeah, States. Cle- but- I'm from Cl- Cleveland, Cleveland, Ohio, the Paris of northeastern Ohio. <laughs> um, so says you. Uh, what are your Canadian roots and, and connections to Canada, ultimately? My grandfather uh, was from Clinton, Ontario, which was, that was the inspiration for my last book, Parking the Moose, um, you know, because he always taught us that Canada was the greatest country in the world, which, you know, growing up in America, you're brainwashed to, they try to tell you that America's the best. My grandfather was like, no, Canada's the best. So I decided to explore Canada for that last book. And then, and now for this new book, The Awesome Game that just came out yesterday, I'm uh, exploring my love of hockey and my frustration that it's not the most popular sport in America. Well, let's talk about that because there are cities, of course, like when I go to Minnesota, the games are super popular, but regardless, it's still not the number one sport on TV or even in attendance. So do you find yourself in markets where people just don't care at all? Like, what is that relationship like with you, hockey, and the U.S.? Yeah, it's it's a lonely, as a hockey fan, it can get pretty lonely. I mean, <laughs> granted, there's, you know, obviously a lot of hockey fans and teams and stuff, but I live in New York City and, and live one subway stop away from, you know, Madison Square Garden where the Rangers play. But when I go into a bar in my neighborhood to watch a game, I have to say the Rangers. And they're like, who? who? I'm like, the hockey team here in our here in our town. And, you know. Tell them what channel it's on. Even during the playoffs, it's very. I'm enraged, but uh, trying to trying to change all that. So this globe crushing hockey odyssey. Where did it take you? Like I'm on. I I see it took you to Kenya. So I'm interested to see how that where that fell on your journey. Yeah, I went to Kenya, which you know is not the first place uh, you think of when you think of ice hockey. But that was sort of an accident. Uh, <laughs> well, I was. I was looking on the internet for cool non-NHL hockey jerseys, and I found this website that had a list. And on it was uh, a jersey for a team called the Kenya Ice Lions. And I thought, Kenya, that must be some small town in Manitoba I've never heard of. But then upon further inspection, it was the country of Kenya. Uh, So I wrote these guys and asked them if I could, you know, swing by and play hockey with them. So I flew to Kenya and uh, I pretty, I really expected to kick their ass at hockey, but uh, it was the other way around. I'm, I'm sorry to report. I learned a hard lesson. We'll talk about the idea of trying to almost single-handedly get the rest of the world to, to fall and ho- fall in love with hockey the way you are right now, Dave, you know, in your videos. And it's, by the way, Mr. Dave Hill on Instagram, if you want to follow. You've got some incredibly yeah. awesome vintage uh hockey wear, including uh, Quebec Nordiques and Winnipeg Jets. So uh, salute to you on that stuff, Dave. But this Thank this you. whole idea of, of the lack of appreciation, you just outlined exactly what happens in New York. I've seen it in places where I'm traveling to as well. It's, you know, inside the arena, there's not much 
you know, to compare, like, I, I think if, if you drop someone into United Center in Chicago or Bell Center in Montreal, it, you know, you would think that each market was as crazy about hockey as the other. And Montreal fans probably don't like that notion very much, but they, they're absolutely rabid fans within the building. But once you get outside the building, as Loren mentioned, th- these teams are third, fourth most popular franchises if you're lucky. Why is that? Why don't Americans get yeah. it? I don't know. You know, I've, I have a variety of theories. I mean, the obvious ones are that, you know, most of America doesn't get cold enough to have outdoor rinks and pros and ponds, so it's hard for people to just walk outside and play hockey when they're growing up. But uh, I also have, you know, lately I've been developing this conspiracy theory uh, that I feel like maybe it's an anti-Canadian sentiment. Maybe Americans are afraid to embrace this amazing sport that was vented invented in uh, the amazing country of Canada where I am right now. So I don't know. That's just, that's just a, you know, a conspiracy theory I've come up in the last couple of days. Is it possible? Is it possible, Dave, that Americans just find it too confusing? Like baseball, you know, there's a start and stop. You have to stop, set, get set up for a pitch, throw a pitch. Football, there's like, there's more time doing nothing there is than there is doing something. And hockey is in constant motion. I had a conversation with a baseball fan once. He goes, I can't get into it. It's all the, just everything's together and the puck finally bounces out and it, it, it feels disorganized. Is that part of it? I think it could be, but it's sad. I mean, you know, I think, you know, I think what you're hinting at, and I agree with you, is, well, Americans are maybe a little too slow. They can't, they can't keep up with it, but everything you've just described is what makes hockey so awesome. It's just all this nonstop action. You know, it's really a metaphor for life. Chaos and finesse and, you know, everything. All, all, you know, it's like a ballet on ice and uh, some sweet hockey hair and ho- hockey mustaches and stuff. <laughs> is that and, the sales uh, yeah, pitch then it, when you go all- in? It- is that the 30 seconds, you know, like if you're trying to convince someone to come on over to your side, to the hockey side, everything you just said sounds great. What's the pushback from people? Um, I don't know. I, I really think it's like they just maybe just don't understand it. I mean, football, the number one sport in America, which honestly, the, even the sound of a football game, I, I find depressing on, you know, when I hear it on TV, I have to just shut it off. But, uh, I don't know, football, you have 11 guys aside, and, you know, nine of them aren't doing anything, really. Last time I checked, um, it's just, I don't know. I really, I, I'm, now I think it is that Americans are just too slow. They're too stupid. And I say that as an American, an, an exception, a, re- a really <laughs> intelligent American who gets it. Our guest is Dave Hill. He is the author of The Awesome Game, One Man's Incredible, Globe-Crushing Hockey Odyssey. And I see that one of the places that your odyssey took you to is a place that Greg here has some fondness for because he spent some time there, and that's Finland. How was that? Oh, that was amazing. I'd never been to Finland before, and, you know, I wanted to get to some some European games, and... That one happened, similar similar jersey story. One of my favorite jerseys is for the Tampa Ilvis who play in the Liga, which is the Finnish version of the NHL. And I, want, I tried to order this jersey online, but they wanted like $75 to ship it to America. And I was like, I'm not falling for this. I'm just going to go to Finland 
and get this jersey so I don't have to pay that ridiculous shipping <laughs> charge. Yeah. But I went there. I, I saw, you know, three different games. It was Finland's amazing. Everyone's really tall. I felt like I'm, I'm, I'm six feet tall, but I felt like a tiny little man walking around Finland. Everyone, they're giant people. Well, when you have a and team named Jokeret with a clown on the on the jersey, you know you're in for a good time. And they love the rhythmic clapping in Finland. Like they're very polite, oh, yeah. you know. But but the, the, it's it, it's a special atmosphere in the Finnish ranks. It's insane. I mean, just you know, going there and going to Poland, where their enthusiasm just spills over into full on violence. Um, yeah, in Europe, they just, uh, they're, they're fired up at hockey games. And that was one thing I came back to North America to watch games again. And I was like, oh man, we, we need to step it up. The Europeans are outdoing us in their enthusiasm. Um, but the one thing I'll tell you, and I think there would be rioting if they did this in, in North America, in Finland at the hockey games, you can't bring alcohol into the actual arena like you can drink in between periods so i mean maybe that's just because if they let people drink it would just be like complete pandemonium probably dave hill the awesome game one man's globe crushing incredible hockey odyssey dave pleasure to talk to you again thank you for joining us we look forward to learning more from your book thanks for having me go jets